Well, it's good to be with you. Praise the Lord. Last year, 5th of September, was my wedding anniversary. My, my 28th wedding anniversary. Anyway, it was one of those lockdown moments. We couldn't go very far, so we went for a picnic. And uh, at that picnic, I told my wife a dream that I'd had the night before. I woke up in the middle of the night and there was a guy called Burt Reynolds standing at the edge of my bed. <laughs> now only the old guys are laughing because you young guys have no idea who that is, eh? In fact, I think, he's a, I think he's dead already. He was a cowboy actor, big mustache, always was the sheriff. He's sitting at the end of my bed. He had his black hat on, his sheriff badge on and he was pointing at me and he was saying, it's time to go. I was hyperventilating. I woke up. I thought, have I been seeing things? What's going on? I lay on my bed there. I thought, no, surely he's not talking about it's time for me to die. I'm sure it's not that. I started to look in my, uh, my iPad to see if he had made a movie. It's time to go. He hadn't made a movie. It's time to go. And all day I was thinking, Lord, you're talking to me. Anyway, lunchtime, I plucked up the courage. We were sitting on a blanket overlooking a dam. And I said to my wife, I had this dream. She looked at me like she had seen the ghost herself. Because listen to the story, we've just built our dream house. And her mom and dad have built one on the same property. And my mom and dad have built on the same property. It's like a, like a jolly little uh, commune going on there. And she is in her element. Our folks are clocking in on 80 now and she's a nursing sister and has always dreamed of being able to look after them when they're old. But now God says, maybe it's God, it's time to go. So she looked at me. Uh, I've got to tell you what she said. She said, please don't take me to Johannesburg. <laughs> I'm terribly sorry, but that is actually what she said. So I don't know why I said it, but I said to her, what about Cape Town? She said, you're not serious. Anyway, I'll cut the story short, but a couple of days went by and other people dreamed about me. That doesn't happen. I'm not the object of dreams ever. These guys were saying, you're going to plant a church. I, I also have been in the same church. I've been in elders meetings in the church I lead since 1988. That's a lot of elders meetings. That's a lot of church services. We've sent lots of people, but I've been the dude who stayed. And now God says, it's time to go. And so at the moment, I live in Cape Town. 10 days a month, we fly back up to Marisburg for Sue to stay in her house just for 10 days. Now, actually, we're involved in sites in Marisburg, but mainly we're working in Durban, I mean, in, uh, goodness knows, in Cape Town. And uh, we live right on the, near the waterfront. We got on our bicycles the other day, and we went to a place called Mojo's Market. It's a cool place. It's about the size of this facility. But there's food stalls everywhere. Not the... McDonald's, KFC, etc. They like indigenous to Cape Town. There's a massive noise going on because there's a live band. So everybody is within a couple of inches of each other's ears to hear each other talk. 
and in the middle of lockdown, no one has a mask on because they're all eating food. And the other day I walked in there and there must have been 2,000 people in this place. I thought, this is Cape Town. This is like COVID. How can this be allowed? Anyway, I, I joined in for a little bit. <laughs> on the way back, I'm sitting in an airplane, and I know there's some pilots here tonight, so forgive me, please, but I'm sitting in an airplane, and there's like 200 people on this plane. There's about this much oxygen over me. And we're sitting here for like two and a half hours back to Durban, I look over my shoulder and I think, this can't be right. Because at, at home, we have to like sit a meter and a half apart. And it suddenly dawned on me that the same authorities that decided church occupancy were okay with mojos and okay with the airplanes. Had to guard my heart the whole way home. And then I came to this realization. Airplane travel is very, very important. And the food industry is extremely important. And the beverage industry, well, that's on another level. Church, not so much. That's not an indictment on our government. That's the standard across the world now. The church used to be the moral majority. Now we like the immoral minority. What happened? Like we blinked and, and something changed. You saw Mally up here just now talking about being in the revival in the 70s. It made me feel so young when you said that, by the way. He was from an era where, you know, everybody said they were Christians. Not so much anymore. Whose fault is that? Well, I think in part it's the church's fault. Because we've reduced church to a couple of weekly meetings. Possibly a place that's quite convenient where you go to get your spiritual needs met. It's okay for your kids and it's... it's, it's, it's it's, it's a place where you think that you're going to grow. If you reduce church to that, which is a far cry from what God had in mind, small wonder the world doesn't take it seriously anymore. And maybe it's also the pastor's fault. Let me point to me right now. That we've just got boring. I don't know what they were like in the 70s, Melly. But I'll tell you what it was like a couple of years ago for my daughter. Some of you have met my son. He's been up here for most of the year. But he's got an older sister. When she was four, she was sitting in the front row Easter Sunday. And I was doing a salvation call at the very end. And I, I was really praying them into the kingdom. And I, in the middle of my prayer, I paused. You know, when a preacher pauses, you know something's going to happen. My little four-year-old shouts from the front row, just say amen, dad. It's like, I'm sick of this now. I want to go home. There's Easter eggs at home. There's chocolates at home. We've done church too much. Maybe it's the pastor's fault. I don't know, but lockdown hasn't helped. I've got a prophetic word 
for you tonight. It's very simple. And then I'm gonna preach some theology behind it. Then I'm gonna go back to this prophetic word again. This is the prophetic word. God raises the dead. That's his word to you. God raises the dead. Your dreams are gone. God raises the dead. If your ministry has got stale and your home group is looking something less than desirable, God raises the dead. If your faith is slipping through your fingers, God raises the dead. If your marriage is unraveling, God raises the dead. If your children look like they're slipping out of their faith, God raises the dead. If your business is sinking, God raises the dead. You young guys, sin kills dreams, you know that? Sin breeds death. The wages of sin is death. And this is what the devil wants to do to young people. He wants them to believe that what they've done, what they've seen, where they've been, is going to kill their future. God raises the dead. God raises the dead. His promises that hang over your life, if you think they're dead and they're gone, not only has he been slack in coming, but they just not apply to you anymore. God raises the dead. I'm coming back to this in a moment. But I'd like to earth, well, we know that God does that, but you know how often you think God's gonna raise the dead of somebody else? God raised Jesus from the dead, I believe that, but I'm saying God raises the dead. It's his word for you. Ephesians chapter two, verse five says this. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Paul writing to his friends in Ephesus saying, we feel, feel like we've received the sentence of death. Sometimes I talk to pastors and I can see it in their eyes. Like the people have been stolen away. Like they've been locked away and muzzled the sentence of death. But this happened. Paul says, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says, we feel like we have a sentence of death, but that happens. God allows you to be in this space where it looks like it's slipping away from you so that you don't rely on yourself, that you rely on him who raises the dead. One of his titles, one of his names is the God who raises the dead. His promise is that less a grain of wheat dies and falls to the ground, it doesn't bear fruit. So don't look at yourself and think, the thing's in a pretty bad, this is the end of the road. No, no, this is the beginning of the road because God takes that kernel that's fallen on the floor and he raises the dead. Romans 8, 11 says this. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is where? It's in you. He raises Jesus and he raises you.
We're the resurrection people. We're the resurrection people. We've got the resurrection of the Spirit inside of us. We've got the resurrection power of the Spirit inside of us. And we to call things that are not as, that, as if they are. Why? Because we serve the God who raises the dead. Because we're the resurrection people. It's in His nature to breathe life into the dead. It's God who raises the dead. It's God who puts life into old wombs. It's God who opens old wells. It's God who brings back exiles as if they were dead. It's God who makes a widow's heart sing, Job says. It's God who turns our morning into dancing. It's God who takes those dry bones and he makes them live because God raises the dead. You say, Grant, you're trying to hype me up here, so let me get to some theology. Let's talk about the resurrection. I'm talking about your resurrection. I'm not talking about Jesus' resurrection. I'm talking about your resurrection. It is a foundation doctrine in the Bible. If you read Hebrews chapter 6, in fact, Hebrews chapter 5, that last few verses say that the mature become that way through constantly using the foundation doctrines of the faith, and then they are listed in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, eternal judgment, baptisms, the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead. Your resurrection. Let's look at what the Bible says about that. Let me ask this question. What do you think is going to happen when you die? Think you're going to grow a pair of wings? Get a little paunch? Float on a cloud with a harp and be in eternal church service. Lord, no, please. Are you going to come back like a ghost to torture those who've been horrible to you? Are you planning your return? Some people believe in reincarnation. Are you going to come back like a cat? Whatever you're thinking right now, I'll tell you one thing that is common to people all over the world. They believe this. This is what we can all agree on. Every faith. Death is the enemy. Death removes loved ones. Death removes important people from the world. Death breaks relationships. Death's the enemy. Now God's answer to death, that enemy, is the resurrection. What does the Bible say about the resurrection? Well, the Bible says that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 8. And when Jesus was on the cross and he was hanging there and the criminal next to him surrendered to him, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that we know that the body goes into the ground and who knows, but the spirit ascends that we go to heaven. The great preacher D.L. Moody on his deathbed said this. He must have had moments of slipping in and out of consciousness, but in one of these moments he says, is this dying? Why, this is bliss. There is no valley 
I've been within the gates. Earth is receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling. I must go. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And the Bible describes heaven as a beautiful place. He uses metaphors like cities and banquets. and There's going to be stuff going on there. There's going to be governance. There's going to be relationship. There's going to be... It's, it's far more than a boring church service. But this is the point. Heaven is never described as the final destination. There is something missing in heaven. There is an anticipation of the people in heaven. In fact, in Revelation chapter 6, there are people in heaven saying, How long, Lord? How long till you wrap this all up? Heaven is glorious. It's like a glorious pit stop to the ultimate where God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth for us to live in. So that's what the, the Bible teaches. But this is the thing. This is the basic. We're going to have a look at the most exhaustive chapter on this because we need to understand what it means when God says to you, he raises the dead. is that you are not going to live in that new heaven and new earth like Casper the ghost. You're not going to be a freaky spirit that's drifting around like some mist. You're receiving a resurrected body to live in the new heaven and the new earth. That's what the Bible teaches because God raises the dead. You. Let's go to the chapter that covers this the most exhaustively. Let's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's go there quickly. You see, the Corinthians, he's writing to the church of Corinth. The Corinthians believed that God raised Jesus from the dead, but there was a teaching going on that you weren't going to get raised from the dead, that you weren't going to get a resurrection, resurrection body. How did that get into the church? Well, we don't really know. Maybe they were being influenced really by the Greeks. The Greeks believed that your body was evil and your spirit was pure. And when you died, you'd be freed from this impure body and you would be, you know, Casper. Maybe the Sadducees had got in amongst this church because that religious sect, the Sadducees, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. We don't know. But Paul was writing to correct this. This is what he says. But if it is preached... That Christ has been raised from the dead, verse 12. How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? He's basically answering this question. I'm telling you, he says, God raises the dead. How can some of you say there's not if Jesus was raised from the dead? And then he puts a little argument together, and I don't want you to get lost in the argument, but verse 29, he says this. Now, if there's no resurrection of the dead... What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now, just hang on a minute. You're saying, God, this is getting freaky. What's going on here? You know, Auntie Mary died. She didn't get baptized. So it's like, you know, Uncle Bill, he's getting baptized for Auntie Mary. This is not a theology that you should be doing because listen to what Paul says. Now, why are they, why are those He's distancing himself from them very clearly. Why are there those people? He's saying, even the people with this weird practice 
believe there's a resurrection of the dead. If the weirdos believe in the resurrection of the dead, surely you guys got to. And then he says, and as for me, why am I and the apostles endangering our lives day in and day out preaching the resurrection of the dead if it isn't true? So let's go to the starting point of his understanding. Well, the first starting point, biblically, is that your body is important. It's important, unlike the Greeks. This body is sacred. It's been given to you by God. That's why you can't damage someone else's body. That's why you can't take a life. It's sacred. That's why abortion is horrific, because the body is sacred. The body of a baby is sacred. The body of a mom is sacred. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. When Jude, the younger brother of Jesus, wrote his little book, or his little page, he said, when the archangel Michael was contesting with the devil for the body of Moses, he didn't slander the celestial being. Instead, he said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, we often focus our teaching there on how to handle the demonic, but let's go back a little bit. What the heck is going on there? The archangel Michael and the devil squabbling over the dead, rotting remains of Moses. Well, let's put it this way. The DNA of Moses in a dusty, arid place. Well, firstly, we've got to understand this. The devil had no right to Moses, his soul or his body, but this is what we do understand. The body is important. Even if it is just a speck of DNA. The resurrection of the dead was a strong theology taught by the apostles and the early church. You don't hear it much taught today. In fact, a few hundred years ago, the preachers used to preach about the resurrection of the dead all the time. Queen Victoria is buried in London. You can go and see her tomb. Over her tomb, she's buried alongside her husband. This is what she has inscribed on her tombstone. Here at last, I will rest with thee. So in other words, thee is her husband. And with thee, in Christ, I will rise again. Even that old queen knew. <laughs> and you might say, well, why is it so important? Well, let's have a look what Paul says here. Verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not has been raised, he gives this list. My preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. We are false witnesses. Your faith is futile. And you are still in your sin. And then he goes on to say, those who have fallen asleep are lost for eternity and we are to be pitied more than anybody in the planet. We who preach that there's hope in a new heaven and a new earth to be lived in in a resurrected body. No, it's what God calls us to believe. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul's writing to the Romans and he says to them, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and you confess with your mouth that he is your Lord, you will be saved. What's the conditions? Believe in your heart 
that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that he's your Lord, you will be saved. It's foundation to our faith. I've met a guy in Cape Town, had a game of golf with him a couple of Mondays ago. He's 56. Our house, church that we planted there is in Woodstock, which is really cool. It's right down in this place where it's got this renewal happening in Cape Town. So the church is really young. I'm like the grandpa of the church. So I was really glad when this guy joined us, this 57-year-old. But he's young in his faith. I said, how did you get saved? He said, you know what? I've always had a God consciousness. But I kept tripping over this resurrection of Jesus bit. That I had to believe he came like out of a tomb that a stone moved. I'm just, I'm a scientist. It was like tricky for me. I used to argue my way out of Christian debates on that point. And then I'll tell you what happened. He fell in love with a girl in our Maritzburg church. And she said, you don't even going to hold my hand unless you believe in Jesus. <laughs> which, <laughs> which really put him in a crisis. This was four years ago. But he's a man of integrity, so he did not pretend to be saved. But he was searching. But this is the thing he was stumbling over, the resurrection. And then one day someone gave him a DVD to watch from some old-time preacher in America from Resurrection Sunday. And this old preacher said, you can't prove this scientifically. You can argue it logically. Well, why would the disciples allow themselves to be martyred if he hadn't actually risen from the dead? You, there's reasonable deduction, but you won't prove it scientifically. But this is what God asks you to believe. That he who created the cosmos was powerful enough to exert his spirit into the corpse of his son and raise him from the dead. If you dare to believe that, he comes upon you, transforms you, makes you new. The scales fall off your eyes. And that spirit that raised Jesus from the dead brings life to you, spiritual life to you. And suddenly the scales dropped. They thought, I can do that. I can believe that. That God is powerful. If he made this and he made me, he can breathe life there. Okay, I'm gonna believe that. As he took that step of faith, he was gloriously saved. It's foundational to our faith. And it brings hope. When we see that not only has he raised Jesus from the dead, that we partake with that resurrection power as he quickens our spirits and our spirits are alive, but there is a hope eternally that we too will be raised like Jesus. This is what it says in 1 Colossians Colossians 1.6 says, The faith and love that spring from hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in this true message of the gospel that has come to you. He says, there is a hope waiting for you, a resurrection hope waiting for you. That brings life to you now. So you might say, well, God, well, how does this happen? It's a very good question. Verse 35, Paul asks it rhetorically. But someone will ask, he says, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? You think it's a good question, eh? 
his next line. How foolish. <laughs> Stupid question, but he answers it anyway. He says this, when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be. So what he's saying is that when my body, this creaky old body, falls into the grave one day, it's not going to pop up like it's gone down. My wife has just planted some sweet corn. She didn't take a full sweet corn plant, dig a trench as big as a grave, drop it in it, and water it and expect it to pop up again. No, she took a, a pip, a little seed. She dropped the seed into the ground. There was a little, there was some DNA. There was some, something in there that was, that was going to be watered and grow. And this is what he says. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed. And verse 38 says, but God gives it a body as he determines. What do we get from that? Well, listen, you're not given another body, you're given a resurrection body. So there is some continuity with this body and that one. Like there's some continuity with the seed that's in the ground and the sweet corn that stands up six months later. But, and this is what he's saying, that I don't know what, how that works. I don't care if you're swallowed by a great white shark off sea point and he goes to the toilet in fish hook and your DNA is in an oyster shell at the Cape Point when the time of the resurrection comes. If there's a genetic DNA morsel on this planet, God who raises the dead can raise something up out of that. That's what he says. That's a foundation teaching in the Bible. And then he says, you guys are getting all freaked out about this. So he says, verse 39, not all flesh is the same. Not all flesh is the same. There's people flesh, he says. There's animal flesh. And then he says, there's heavenly body flesh. C.S. Lewis, the great theologian who wrote Narnia, who wrote Mere Christianity, great theologian, said this about our future bodies. They will be more real, more substantial, and perhaps more human than our present ones. So verse 42 says, so it'll be at the resurrection of the dead. The body, this one, that is sown perishable, it's going to be food for worms, this body of mine. It's going to go dust to the earth, but it'll be raised imperishable. It'll be sown in weakness. This body of mine is so weak. I dislocated my shoulder four, four months ago. It popped out over here while I was out at sea in a boat doing a stupid thing. <laughs> I've got these little tendons that are like incredibly painful. Praise God, this weak body of mine is going to be raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body, verse 44 says. And then he just explains it like this. He says, the first man, talking about Adam, was of the dust of the earth. The second man, who's who? Jesus, was of heaven. Is of heaven, he says. Verse 49, and just as we've borne the image of the earthly man, so my body is somewhat like Adam's, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. 
So when I'm resurrected, what's he saying? My body's going to look a little bit like the resurrected body of Jesus. Let's talk about that for a minute. It can be touched. It's got substance. Remember he said to Thomas, he said, touch me. Feel me. But it wasn't governed by the laws of nature that we live in here on planet Earth. He could walk through walls. It was substantial, but it was heavenly. This is the promise of Scripture. You're not going to be floating around like Casper. God's going to take some of your DNA. There'll be something that is so imperishable that he will raise. He wouldn't call it resurrection if there was no link. You might say, well, when is that going to happen? I went cold tonight when that lady got up here and said, he is coming like a thief in the night. Paul tells us exactly when it's coming. He says, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortal. What's he saying? He's saying in the twinkling of an eye. So it's not going to happen like gradually. It's not like, you know, that there's going to be like this slow rising out of the earth and this freaky metamorphosis that takes place. It's not going to be like it. That word, twinkling, is the Greek word atomos, which is where we get the word atom from. It's like this, it's like the split, it's like a nanosecond. He didn't say the blinking of an eye. You can see an eye blink. He said the twinkle of an eye. In the twinkling of an eye, he says, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortal. You think, Ron, are there other scriptures that describe the coming of Jesus at the last trumpet? Plenty. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead will rise first. And then it goes on to say, those of us still alive will be caught up with him, and they will be transformed. Then he will make a new heaven and a new earth. Know how God speaks, friends. Man came to me before the service, or after the morning service. And he, he missed his moment to frighten you a few minutes ago. But just blow that thing that you said you were going to blow. No. 
Now, I'm not suggesting... Now, I'm not suggesting that that is used as the next musical instrument. And I'm not suggesting there's a new ministry of blowing horns. But he came to me this morning and he said, you know, I felt God saying in the spirit, you need to hear about this trumpet. A woman comes midway through worship and what does she say? Jesus is coming. When that heavenly trumpet blows and Jesus returns, there is a mighty resurrection that he has planned. Why? Because he is a resurrecting God. He raises the dead. And that's our promise into the future. You might ask, well, who is going to be raised? Well, this makes it very clear that everybody is going to be raised. First, those who are dead in Christ, but everybody. In John chapter 5, Jesus, speaking about this subject, says that even the unsaved will be raised to spend an eternal separation from him in their resurrected bodies. Some of you are saying, I don't really like that. It's not popular to talk about hell. Hell or Hades is also not a permanent place right now. It is going to get thrown into a lake of fire. It's not cool. I mean, when, when Jesus told the parable about Lazarus and the rich man, he said there's a separation between now and between heaven and between Hades. And, and you, you know, once you hop on the flight over the grave, you can't change your destination. That's what Jesus was saying. But those places are like a glorious pit stop and a painful pit stop for all eternity. And so as we bring this to a close, how does he end this? He says in verse 54, death, remember I said death's the enemy. God's answer to the enemy of death is resurrection. He says this, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your, your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Let me put it this way. Death was defeated at the cross but it is getting swallowed up at the resurrection. It lost its power at the cross, but it is getting obliterated at the resurrection. And he uses this metaphor of a, of a sting, like a bee. You know when a bee stings you? It puts its sting into you, and as it pulls its sting out of you, it detaches from its body, and that bee wallows around in the throes of death until it dies. That's the picture that's been used. The sting of death, which is sin, was thrust into the body of Jesus on the cross. And the, the, the cross, as the sting of death was put into it, killed it. And it has been lying in the throes of death, waiting to be swallowed up at the resurrection. That's what that verse is saying. The answer 
to the enemy of death is the cross of Christ and the resurrection. And so, we've gone through like 57 verses of theology. Well done. Understanding the resurrection. And then verse 58, Paul says, therefore. When you read that in the Bible, that's the practical application of the theology you've just studied. So you've now understood what's going to happen with the resurrection. Therefore, because you know this young guy, young girl, person whose business is busy crashing, person whose marriage is busy unfolding, because you understand the theology that God is a resurrecting God, therefore, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Why? Because he's a God that raises the dead. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain because our God has a plan for your life. Let me close with one last illustration. When Jesus went to that house in Bethany that he loved so much, which was owned by Martha, Martha ran out to meet him this time and said to him, you came here too late. If you'd got here early, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus said to Martha, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha said, I know he's going to at the final day at the resurrection. What did Jesus say to her? I am the resurrection and the life. When you know Jesus, you know resurrection even before resurrection day. He is the resurrection and the life. As he looks at your womb that hasn't been cooperating. He is the resurrection and the life. When he looks at your business that hasn't been cooperating, he is the resurrection and the life. When he looks at your marriage that's busy unraveling, he is the resurrection and the life. So what does that mean? If we understand this theology, we know that in your marriage, the seeds of what you see right now, he can rise that thing up. It's, got, it's the su same substance, but it's going to be the body that he determines. It's going to be something glorious that he has given. That's what he does. That's what, when God resurrects, that's what he does. He gives it a form that he determines. Young guys, your future, lying there, you're thinking it looks hopeless. He's going to take the substance of the dream that you had, the substance of the prophecy that was put there before you. Because he is a God that raises the dead. He's the resurrection and the life. He wants to breathe that into you tonight. Why don't you stand to your feet, please?